Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So after doing a whole long series on uh, mindfulness, uh, when we went through the Satipatthana Sutta, I think we spent about 13 weeks or so going through and um, almost line by line through the, through the discourse. Uh, when I saw the inquiring mind issue on uh, money, sex, and power, I thought that that might be uh, uh, just a whole other way to approach practice, that you don't have to go line by line in a sutta. And to make it relevant to our life, these are probably issues that pop up in your screen from time to time. So uh, I thought we'd explore it together. Um, and I, I want to say at the start, that sometimes when somebody is sitting in the, in, the, in the Dharma seat, there can be this idea that, oh, well, they know the answer. You know, I can tell you a list or two, or maybe from, uh, from my understanding of a Buddhist perspective, but I just want to say uh, off the bat that uh, I don't profess to be an expert in any of these areas, just kind of... Um, discovering for, for myself and as we can explore together, just uh, see the wisdom in the group and also um, shed perhaps a little bit more awareness on places that we might uh, get stuck and how we can free ourselves. I thought exploring the issue of money uh, that I'd start off with a little bit about the Buddha's, some of the Buddha's words on the topic, just to give a, a framework for it. Uh, as you know, or probably know, that right livelihood is right there in the Eightfold Path. That the Buddha realized that we live in a society that depends on our interconnectedness and interactions and in supporting ourselves and our loved ones and um, being a functioning link in that societal culture. So, just to realize one thing, that money and livelihood is an integral part of the spiritual life. It's not antithetical to it. And the Buddha talks from time to time about different kinds of happiness. I've mentioned this before in one discourse. He talks about four kinds of happiness. There's the happiness of being free from debt. These are happinesses for a lay person who's never meditated or perhaps never will meditate. Being free of debt. He said, this is a kind of happiness. He was just kind of, you know, down home, telling it like it is. Okay. And then there's a happiness that comes from having uh, enough prosperity that you can take care of your loved ones in a, in a good manner. Uh, then there's a third happiness where you have enough good fortune that you can be generous with others. This is even a greater source of happiness. And then, as we've mentioned a number of times, 
more than any of those three is the happiness that comes from living a life of integrity. That that's a much greater source of well-being. But do want to mention that, practically speaking, those others count for some dimension of happiness anyway. One of the, the Buddha's main uh, disciples, devotees, um, his greatest lay supporter was uh, a man named Anattapindika. And Anattapindika uh, was a, a very, very wealthy merchant who uh, was so taken by the Buddha and his teachings that he provided the Buddha with the um, with what's what was called the Jetta Grove, Anattapindika's park, which he obtained by paying this exorbitant sum for the property. He saw this property and he said, "This is the perfect place for the Buddha and his his sangha to practice." And when the person uh, who owned it was asked what the price was, he said. I'm not selling. I, I'm not selling. I, this is this is my land. I'm not. I'm not going to sell. He said, "Do you have a price? Any price?" And the and the owner, just to kind of put him off, said, "Yeah, if you could cover the whole the whole park with gold, I'll sell it for it. I'll give it to you. I'll sell it for you for that price." And Atapindika proceeded to wheel in barrels and barrels of gold, and as the story goes, covered the whole bottom in, uh, in gold, and that's how the Buddha got his cheddar growth. It's a pretty good fundraising uh, <laughs> scheme. Um, but at one point, Anattapindika heard the Buddha's teachings on living simply in renunciation. And he went to the Buddha and he said, you know, you talk about the life of a monastic, someone who goes forth and um, just lives the simple holy life. And here I am, so wealthy. Uh, perhaps I'm not doing what I should to, uh, to really advance in my spiritual life. Maybe I should give away all my fortune and um, become a monk. And the Buddha said, no, not so, Anattapindaka. Your karma is being wealthy. And you can do very good things with your wealth. So not to think that the only way is to give up everything and become a mendicant, but it is, uh, it is a karma that has its own wisdom and to learn to use your wisdom well with this. And perhaps you know, I've met a number of people in my time who've come to retreats who um, have real wealth. And it has its own karma. You'd think, perhaps, oh, well, they've got it made. They don't have anything to be unhappy about. And sometimes it is uh, a more, as challenging a karma as... Um, um, as not having, uh, not having good fortune and having some very uh, difficult emotional uh, traumas that sometimes people aren't sure of why 
others want to be with them, and they are confused in their own relationship with with money. And uh, so I've, I've spoken to a number of people who this this has been a real um, source of inquiry for them. Anyway, a couple of things about the uh, more, then we'll get on. The Buddha talked about. Um, what to do if you do have, if you're running a, a business, uh, what to do with your money. He talked about putting a portion of it, I'm trying to remember if it was a quarter, there were four areas that he talked about it. It might be a quarter each, but I'm not positive on that. But one portion of your earnings from your business, you set aside for savings. One portion you take care of your and your family's needs. One portion, you reinvest in your business to help make it grow. And another portion, you give away and experience the, the joy of, of giving and generosity. Uh, and then he talked about having balance in, in money. Boy, is that, that, that's been going off for the last... Uh, interesting. And then it stops, doesn't it? And then it just goes off again. It has a life of its own. How interesting. May you have a, a better enlightenment to the next, in your next birth than being a Honda Civic or whatever it is. <laughs> okay. So, again, this is, a, a, this is from a sutta entitled A Lay Person's Welfare. Um, um, a, family ma- a family person earns their living uh, whether by farming, trade, cattle raising, civil service, or some, of some other craft. They are skillful and diligent. They investigate the appropriate means and are able to act and arrange everything properly. That's persistent effort. So they earn their living in a diligent and skillful way. And then they have the accomplishment of protection. The family person sets up protection and guards over the wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by strength of their arms, earned by sweat of their brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, thinking, how can I prevent kings and bandits from taking this away? Fire from burning it, floods from sweeping it off, and unloved heirs from taking it. This is the accomplishment of protection. Very practical. We're still trying to figure out how can we keep kings and bandits from (laughs) taking our money. Uh, Then there is um, the... the, uh, Balanced living. Family person knows their income and expenditures and leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly, so that their income needs exceed expenditures rather than the reverse. Okay, very, very wise. Um, In the uh, inquiring mind, Ajahn Amaro in his interview uh, makes a point as far as um, receiving gifts He's, he's asked, uh, well, what if somebody offers you a mansion or, or offers to drive you around in a Rolls Royce? And Amaro answers, it's very interesting. In the lifetime of the Buddha, fellow yogis would sometimes criticize him. 
How can you call yourself a monk when the king invites you to the palace and you eat at banquets? A seven-story building was built for you. How can you accept, accept such a thing? And the Buddha replied, of all, of all of the monks who live in this seven-story mansion, none of them consider that they own it or that it is their right. They all look upon it as a roof over their heads for a night. They didn't ask or maneuver for it. Therefore, it is blameless. <clears throat> if, the, if the gifts become so extravagant that the community starts to, uh, starts to have some questions, then that might be getting out of balance with the appropriateness of, of their gifts. He said, you must be guided by the lifestyle of average householders who are supporters of your monastery. So you don't want to live too high on the hog, but it's okay to have a, to have a lifestyle where you can take care of yourself. Um, and I'll, I'll just say, on a personal basis, I'll share a little bit about myself. That, um, I was a school teacher for a number of years, in New York City mostly, and uh, I was living on my own, making, I think I might have mentioned it recently, $17,000 a year, which was a lot in those days. This is in the late 60s and 70s. And uh, I would, one thing I, I remember doing, besides putting money away, you know, I would come go to the bank and put some away, but I would um, live on a certain amount of cash, and the f we got paid every two weeks. That's when the check came out. And I deposit some, and then I have some cash. And I used to play a little game with myself. This was in the days I was borderline, you know, stealth hippie, but functioning, uh, long hair and all. And, and I would, um, the first week, I would just get whatever I wanted and not think much about the cost. And towards the, the end of the second week, I'd kind of go into my renunciate <laughs> mode. And it was, because uh, I, I didn't have that much left, but I didn't want to, it was just this game I played with myself. Okay, I can enjoy and I can do without. Um, Siddhartha, I think, came to mind where he could think he could wait and he could fast. And, uh, and it was very interesting to see, to just play with money in that way, like it was a, it's a game. And fortunately, I had enough that I knew there was something in the, in the bank. And after I um, started to get into the Dharma, uh, I left teaching and I uh, just around the same time, I got into sales with um, a network marketing kind of a, a thing. Somebody gave me a glass of spirulina in 1980, and my life changed. <laughs> I said, I want to turn the world on to this stuff. I just, I couldn't believe it was legal, and it was healthy, and it just made me feel great. And I love to turn people on to whatever it is. You know. um, and so I, I developed this, this uh, organization, this multi-level organization, just because I wanted every, I believed everybody should be eating spirulina, which I still do to this day. 
And just at the same time, uh, there was an article in the National Enquirer, it was in June of 1981, that said, safe diet pill. And instantly, it was like the new phenomenon, and you could, the stuff was flying off the shelves. You, I couldn't keep enough um, stock, and I would start to get these bonus checks that were bigger than I ever had before. It was first; it was like maybe eight hundred or a thousand dollars, and then it got to be like you know three or four thousand dollars a month, which was pretty good in those those days. And I remembered the shift in my mind: is this okay? That was the big stump. Is it actually okay to receive this? And I had to go through kind of breaking through my own. Uh, not only worth, but relationship to take to receiving um, receiving money. And when I started to say, okay, I'm, I was teaching by that time. This is the universe's way of subsidizing my dharma work. And I, when I stopped feeling awkward and like it was something wrong, and I could relax behind it, it was. Um, there was something internal that shifted for me about who I held myself to be. And I just say that in case I, I want to explore in a little while whatever beliefs you have about money and, and how, if it's unspiritual or not, even if on a mental, on a, on a rational level, you might think one way. Internally, I found that I, I fought another and it was a dissonance that I had to somehow work through. Anyway, the checks kept on getting bigger and bigger. And I found myself thinking about them much more than I wanted to. And so, what, consciously or unconsciously, I started to, I went into intensive practice, I went for a trip to Asia, and just didn't want to have anything to do with the business for a while. Um, it, the checks by that time were, you know, coming through like you know six, seven thousand dollars a month. You know, it was like, oh my god. But it kind of it, that freaked me out. It actually it did. And what happened was that you know if you're really developing a um, that kind of business, the more support you give, it's like you're watering a garden. And I was good at watering that garden because I wanted to share with everybody what was happening with me that they could possibly happen to them. But I let the garden kind of die off. However, one branch, there was one person in one branch, completely, whatever you call it, fate or karma, who became a superstar. And for... The, the next, and he developed this organization. He was great. We're still good friends these days. We're all are still good friends. And uh, through his efforts, my, I could teach. I could never have lived off of the Donna over the next 15 years that that provided for me. So it's kind of interesting, and at that by that point, I wasn't feeling guilty. Okay, this branch wants to happen. 
bless, bless everybody in the branch and I would give them some support, but I was focused on, on the Dharma. And they really appreciated that too. It was a very spiritual group. Um, so, anyway, I have been living on dana, and on that, that kept alive for about 15 years. And I also love turning people onto uh, the drinking water systems. I, it's, those, are, those are now little trickles from what they used to be. But I lived off of Donna for actually the last 25 years. I never know. I don't. I haven't had a regular job. You know, it's just whatever would come in for the month, and it always worked out. And in the last few years, uh, Jane also. Uh, she's she works as an ESL teacher, and now it's mostly Donna and and uh, and her work. And I see people in uh, privately from time to time. In the last couple of years. Um, as many of you know, this joy course happened. And up until then, uh, there was more going out than coming in. But we always managed. We always worked. Uh, it always worked out. But in the last couple of years, it exploded beyond what I could have possibly imagined. And, um, and now... It gives me great delight to be able to offer it to whoever Whatever anybody wants to uh, to offer, they can uh, they can take it. The interesting thing about the about money, and particularly with that joy course, is that um, I've I've uh, wanted to share it with a number of friends as my guest, and the people who do it as my guest, a lot of my friends. Uh, or uh, colleagues, they get the email. Oh, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, put me on it. Let me let me see. Those people um, find. Uh, oh, yeah, it seemed like some pretty good stuff. Almost all all the time, the ones who just are on it and don't invest anything in it just think, oh, that's a nice thing to do. And the people who are giving whatever they want, whatever they can, um, the, when they invest, they get something out of it. And it's just something that has been interesting for me to see consistently um, that that's often how it works, in not only in our culture, but in our life. When we put something in, then we get something out. Um, sometimes this is a, a, a question around... Uh, uh, around spirit, around the whole Donna system, the teachers for the last 25 years have been trying to sort out what, how the Donna system can work. Um, and for most of us, it works, although it's a question about how it will work in the next 20 or 30 years if people don't have some other source of of income, if they're devoting their life full-time to the Dharma, it's, it's really, it's, you're not going to get rich doing it, uh, especially when you go to all the meetings and all the other things that are kind of part of the package. And we want to both make this, the Dana system available and be able to, uh, to support our, ourselves and our families. 
And Spirit Rock also, although it seems like it's a, you know, it's a very seemingly affluent place, we have 70% of our budget supported by programs and um, uh, the cost of registration. And 30% of, of our budget is completely relying on the donations of people and the generosity of others. So, um, and yet there's something about Spirit Rock sometimes that, that many of us feel, well, it's a little bit, you know, upper middle path, as they as sometimes <laughs> say. Um, but a number of years ago, there, uh, we, had a, um, we had a board meeting where we, uh, it was raised, what would it be like to run completely on Donna? Have everything at Spirit Rock on Donna? And we got really excited. And about 85% of the people in that meeting, about 20 of us, 25 of us, said they would like a vision where Spirit Rock ran completely on Donna and we were going to go for it, say, seven years from that point. That was about eight years ago it happened. And it's just not, not realistic. Um, but at least it's, a, it's an aspiration to make the Dharma available to as many as can, um, can come. And Spirit Rock, I want to say, gave away, I think it was $207,000 last year in uh, scholarships so people could come and practice with us. I think that was the number. Anyway... Money is, it's just an energy. It's a way that we exchange our caring, our services, and our uh, uh, activities. And yet, it becomes a measure of our worth and our power and our status and our validating who we are. And it becomes an icon more than a means to something else, so much is mixed up with, with money. In The Seven Laws of Money, this is one of the books that I pulled out for this. I looked at Seven Laws of Money and Money and, uh, by Michael Phillips and Jacob Needleman's Money and the Meaning of Life. Seven Laws of Money, he, he talks about money being like um, following a dream, and chasing after a dream if you chase after a dream, you'll have a grasping, clenched fist in the end and a sore hand with nothing in it. In a sense, that's what happens to the kind of person who spends all their life seeking money. They're seeking something that's unreal, that doesn't exist, and what they end up with is a hollow existence. In the end, they're not the same person they started out to be. Maybe someone can convince me otherwise by introducing me to a person whose goal was to make a lot of money and who ended up a whole and interesting person. But my experience with people who set out to make, out, make a lot of money is that when they get it, they find there's very little they can do with it or they've changed so much they're not at all what they wanted to be. If that is your goal to make a lot of money, you're really missing out on... Happiness, as I've said before, John D. Rockefeller's line when he was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. You know? <laughs> that, that is a hell realm in itself, isn't it? He probably wouldn't have thought himself 
in a hell realm, but to, um, to never have enough. You can never find the deepest peace from authentic happiness. A systematic study of 22 people who won major lotteries found they reverted to their baseline of happiness over time, winding up no happier than 22 matched controls. Isn't that amazing? It's not going to do it. And then another piece. In the United States, once a person is just barely comfortable, that is, above the poverty line, then added money adds little or no happiness. Um, now, that's also not to say that there's a lot of people who are below the poverty line. And we, we can't um, ignore that. And so it's a little bit, it's more than a little unsettling to see the haves and the have-nots in this culture and the, the divide, especially when money is, the, is such a central um, symbol of our uh, worth or our uh, our self-esteem, um, and it's hard. It's not. It's hard to see, and we've got to do something about this. That's why I'm, I've been so inspired, actually, by John uh, John Edwards just making poverty. It's one of the best things in his campaign. It's right there in the forefront. We've got to do something about this because if there's a whole lot of people who are not having their needs met, there's understandably a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, a lot of fear. So um, we can't obviously address this in this talk, but I just want to mention that it's, it's one thing to not have all the toys you want, and it's another to be really stressed when you can't be uh, taking care of your loved ones. Um, but I wanted us to explore, just in, uh, in the time we have, just what our own relationship is to money, how it contracts us, how it causes suffering, how it can create happiness in our lives, what it uh, what it does um, to our spiritual life. So I'd like you just first to uh, close your eyes and go inside and reflect a bit. First, um, how does money, if it does at all, affect your spiritual life, whether in opportunities or in activities that you're involved in or in ideas that you have, how does it affect your spiritual life?
What beliefs might you have around money that create perhaps suffering? What beliefs would support you, beliefs about money, in having more of a sense of deepening well-being, would support your spiritual journey? Okay, and I think you can just take um, a few minutes to check in with each other and then we'll come back as a group. You can either um, do it in a triad or, uh, or a dyad. Just share your own thoughts, your own relationship to money as, as it impacts your, your life, your spiritual life particularly. What are your thoughts about it? uplifting ones or ones that you get snagged on. So it'll take, say, the next six, seven minutes or so. So you can turn to somebody and uh, either work in a, a dyad or a triad. And I'll let you know when it's about time. Okay, so finish up. Just take a moment to connect with yourself. Well, there was a lot of energy in this room. <laughs> Hope it was a rich experience for you. Um, and I'm always, always kind of uh, torn between. It looks like there's so much happening there, but and and um, wanted to just take a little bit of time to check in and see what came up for you. Any insights? Any um, any questions or things that you want to share with the group? We just have a few minutes. What, what came up? Anybody see something new they hadn't quite seen before? 
Well, I, I did see something new that I hadn't really looked at before around, like, what is my spiritual challenge around, so my edge is how I saw it. Um, like, I've gotten to a place where I feel a sense of my own integrity around money, at least. I'm not a burden. I keep my, you know, I keep my obligations, and I'm as generous as I can, can be especially one-on-one, but I saw my edge was community, and I hadn't seen it around. I knew it personally but I, or emotionally, but I didn't, hadn't seen it financially before around how would I feel about sharing money in community, you know, and, and having that sense of interdependence be way more in my face. Like, I have to trust us <laughs> to handle our money, however, you know, all those issues. And I had a really wonderful conversation with David around when we contribute money to places, how do we know it's getting to what we're contributing to and how that takes up so much time and energy trying to find out what is this about, where is it going, who gets the money, what do they do, and... Mm-hmm. Do the people I want to be taken care of, is it getting to them? Mm-hmm. And so that was a whole new area for me to be looking at with money. Beautiful, yeah. I, I love Ramdas talking about how, how we're just accountants in the firm. We think we, we own the balance, you know, but it, it's just moving through us. And it's all just this exchange of energy and trust and... Uh, Mutual agreements. Anybody else? Uh, I had a burden. Um, When my father died, I inherited. And it enabled me to move here. And for eight years, I have not worked in a real um, kind of job. However, what it's been enabled me to do has been to start resources for people who are dealing with their pets who are maybe ill or dying or deceased. And it's also enabled me to go to Africa in a small mission um, to treat um, cervical cancer in several countries. And I'm going again in September. And without this money or the freedom to do this, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do this. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful, very grateful to my father, but it took me a long time to feel entitled mm-hmm. enough to do, not to feel so guilty. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not working, I'm not worthless. I, I am worthless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who am I if I don't go to work every day? Yeah. And you've done so much. I know, I know you, both your work with animals uh, and uh, and going to Africa you're going for the second time in another few months just that's one of the blessings that where, where you you're you have an opportunity to make a difference and one of the points that I wanted to mention is that uh, it's a bit like the Bodhisattva principle where uh, you're you know the the image of Relieving suffering, you start by taking care of 
yourself and you, you want to become as awake as possible so that your awakening then becomes, you become an agent of awakening for others. And in the same way, on the, the material plane, that taking care of ourself, that coming from a place of sufficiency, then there's a spilling over for the real joy of wealth, the real richness, which is in giving to life, not what you're getting from life, but giving to life. And the, the richest people are not the ones saying, uh, just a little more. The richest people, as I think we all know, are the ones who are content with what they have, where there's a, a fullness, in, where there is an enoughness, and then that abundant heart overflows as, as generosity. Thank you. Um, my name's Margie. We didn't get quite a chance to talk about this aspect of it, but one of the things you said was um, the teaching that the monk wouldn't be, the Buddha wouldn't be excessive if he was reflecting the average household of his community. But when you ask what's the community that that relates to, you know, the farther, the bigger the community, the bigger the gap. And... Um, one thing that we did share is, you know, the, my kids go to the public school here on Russell Street and 60% of the families are under the poverty line mm -hmm. and 40% generally in the Berkeley public schools. So even right here in the community where we can feel, you know, quite comfortable and if you go further. So that is probably the, mo the biggest, you know, spiritual question is how do you take into account that biggest expansion of community? and be responsible and integrity so that what those four quadrants that you talked about, about what to do with your income, it's all about the balance of those four. And it's a art, not a formula, but that choice is a constant choice. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. And I think, I think we all have to keep holding that in our consciousness for there to be a change, you know, it's, it's so obvious that everybody loses with that gap. Um, and uh, I think, I, I'd like to think it's becoming more and more in the general uh, American consciousness. Uh, and um, there's no easy answers, but I think we all have to keep that in our in our minds and our hearts. Biggest donation year for Americans this last year. Yeah. 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 So, and and the more each of us holds it in our consciousness, the more there is that um, spreading of that that idea. Thank you. Okay. Uh, before we go, just I'm wondering how many for how many people is money uh, a significant issue in their in their consciousness, one way or another. So it it is interesting if it's in our consciousness so much how little we talk about it, um, and I'm open to more uh, exploring 
you know, after we go through this series, uh, if you have any thoughts or ideas about um, what you'd like to do further with it. But I would encourage you, as long as we brought it up as a topic this week, to see how you get caught and what thoughts could help you free yourself from that, those snags inside. Because the more conscious, not like you're going to come up with the answers, but the more, you, more conscious you are of the ways that the mind contracts around this issue, um, the, the less power it, it has over you. So, okay, well, let's close with a short loving kindness. And uh, just feel your own heart center and breathe in benevolence from around you. Let yourself be filled with kind, loving energy. And as you breathe out, let it be radiating out a spirit of generosity, well-wishing. And may I be content with what I have. May I have enough to take care of myself and my loved ones. May I open to all the goodness in my life. May I share my love and my resources wisely. And then extending that out to everyone here and all beings, those who are in suffering, who are in need, those who have abundance and can make a difference in their lives. May all beings see our interconnectedness. May all learn to care for each other. May all share their love well. May all awaken to their true nature. And may our coming together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.